This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The legality surrounding the targeted horrific attack on a Muslim family in London, Ontario, was also examined on the show. The suspect, 20-year-old Nathaniel Veltman, has been charged with four counts of first-degree murder, one of attempted murder. The Prime Minister and Premier are among those who've called it a terrorist act. The RCMP is working with police on the possibility of adding terrorism charges. To find out what difference that would make, Libby talked with terrorism expert and former CSIS analyst Phil Gursky and defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. So this is a conversation that is not being had widely enough in Canada for a number of reasons. The number one question that affects how I answer this is, what is the interest of Canadians in terms of what happens to Mr. Veltman? If your interest as a decent, thoughtful, care about, caring, law-abiding Canadian is that Mr. Veltman, with as much ease as possible, if he can be shown to be guilty, and if what London police have released is true, which is an unprecedented release of motive and information faster than almost any case I've ever seen, if everything London police says is true, and you want Mr. Veltman to spend the rest of his natural life behind bars, you do not want terrorism charges laid. You want the charges as they are, which are first-degree murder, four counts, and attempt murder. That's the little boy who's now left to not have a family, because that is the simplest and clearest pathway to a conviction. And why do I say that, Libby? Because we have seen in the past, and as a criminal defense lawyer, I can tell you this is uh, without question, that if you go down the road of terrorism-like charges, you give the defense lawyer more fodder to defend the case, you put more meat on the defense lawyer's bone to argue and fight those charges, which will particularly in a day and age of COVID, necessarily extend, quite likely, the proceedings. So what the police have charged with right now, Libby, again, if you're a Canadian that wants Mr. Veltman to spend the rest of his life behind bars, we can talk about will he really spend the rest of his life behind bars. That's a very interesting question that Canadians aren't talking about yet. Terrorism charges, in my view, are purely political at this point and add nothing this prosecution. I'm going to bring in now to join us Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants and a former strategic analyst at CSIS. Some of the leading politicians mm. in the country have already said this is a terrorist attack. So uh, even if such a thing is warranted, uh, doesn't that poison the well? The reason why London Police Services, and by the way, I'm from London, Ontario, so this kind of strikes home for me. The reason why they are dealing with, with the RCMP and possibly CSIS, my former employer, is they want to determine, is there any other information out there uh, on this young man which, which may have come up in the course of possible terrorism investigations, which either CSIS would have been doing or the RCMP, so that they can better fill out uh, their knowledge on who this individual was. And the most important thing, and you earlier, your guests referred to this just a few minutes ago, 
what is the motivation? Because to lay a terrorism charge under Section 83.01 of the Criminal Code, you have to demonstrate that, it, that an act of violence was planned or perpetrated for religious, political, or ideological reasons. That's what the Criminal Code says. So London police may not have enough information now. They, they want to go to their partners and say, uh, what do you have? Um, as to politicians, the Prime Minister, uh, Premier Ford, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh calling it an act of terrorism, um, I hate to be um, so forward, uh, Libby, but this is egregious. They've decided this is terrorism before any facts are in. And this may, in fact, make the prosecution more difficult because the politicians have already decided. Now, they can say whatever they want. They're politicians, right? When, it, when push comes to shove, the Crown will decide which charges to go through with based on the greatest chance of success. And as your earlier guest or your other guest just said, the greatest chance of success is first-degree murder because that's easier to prove than terrorism because you don't have to prove motive for first-degree murder. All you have to prove is premeditation. Why he did it is irrelevant. Did he do it? Did he plan it? That's all you need. I don't know about you, Libby. I don't read mine. I don't have crystal balls. And unless the suspect confesses, unless you read it. Wrote it sounds like he did. Something online? Well, it sounds like it. But unless there's some kind of detailed manifesto with, I did this for reasons X, Y, or Z, it's really, really hard to prove motive. So I'm with your guest. First-degree murder is the correct choice, and we shouldn't be going down the terrorism road until we know an awful lot more about the young man, his circumstances, and why he did it. Terrorism expert and former CSIS analyst Phil Gursky and defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Ottawa will soon lift quarantine measures for fully vaccinated Canadians and permanent residents returning to this country. Starting next month, they will no longer have to quarantine in a hotel when they return. Instead, they'll have to self-isolate while waiting for results of a COVID test. Joining Libby to discuss, David Schultz of Leger, U of T bioethicist Dr. Kerry Bowman, and travel insurance expert Martin Firestone. Finally, fully vaccinated people are going to get some form of recognition and be able to travel again, hopefully sooner than later. David Scholes, I mean, what was the holdup given the extent of the support among Canadians for this, if for no other reason they want to travel, let alone returning home without having to stay in those quarantine hotels? Well, Canadians, you know, we do want to travel, but only about 17% of us would travel to the U.S. even if the borders were open just because we're still a little cautious. But then I think that's what's playing into the whole desire for a vaccine passport. 82% of Canadians say to travel by plane, you should have some sort of vaccination passport to do so. So anything that involves large crowds or travel, uh, Canadians are in support of passports. Martin Firestone, uh, so we don't really have anything now. If a Canadian wants to travel to, say, Germany... Can they get in with the piece of paper like I was holding up? At this point, there is absolutely nothing specific as to what you're even supposed to show. And that's a great question. Is it a piece of paper? Is it a barcode on your phone? These things all have to come out in the next couple of weeks, as I suspect this will take place. I would think after the July 1st Canadian holiday weekend or the July 1st U.S. weekend. At that point, there's got to be this item you can hold in your hand, and I don't think it's a crumpled piece of paper either. <laughs> oh, I guess mine got a little crumpled in my purse. And I, I have to say, full disclosure here, I, I do have a, a sort of personal reason for doing this. 
my husband is intent on taking this uh, kind of long planned on again, off again trip to Germany on June the 27th. I think he's a little, uh, I won't use the word nutty for doing that. Um, he got his second shot today. He'll be fully vaccinated, but um, there could be trouble ahead. Right, Martin? There could be for sure. They've, they've got to be careful. And every country, I don't know how they're all going to be on the same page as to what they're going to accept and whether it's legitimate and whether it's accurate. And that's going to be the biggest challenge facing anybody, yet alone going into provincially. The minute you leave and go into the U.S., what are they going to accept? The minute you go to Germany, what are they going to accept? This is going to be the problem that we have to get around. And I'm sure they've got some ideas in how they're going to present it. And let's bring in Kerry Bowman, Assistant Professor of Family and Community Medicine at the Temerty Faculty of Medicine Expertise. And uh, Kerry... Do you have any inkling of the legality, not the legalities, but the practicalities? If, if the government has just started talking about this, how long will it take them to roll it out? I mean, Israel had one in February. Well, what we need now is global and international cooperation. And, you know, we need to be mindful of a very, very important fact here. Things are getting tremendously better by the day in, in countries like Canada um, there's a lot of indications the pandemic's getting far worse globally. So those of us that are talking about travel, this is going to be a very elite type of thing. Uh, you know, I personally work globally in both Africa and South America. I have no idea uh, what kind of restrictions I will be faced with when I have to get back to work uh, with, and whether they're going to like the kind of vaccine I have. And, you know, what will it be? I, I too, have a piece of paper. It's not as crumpled up as yours, I saw, but... Um, <laughs> But I folded it. But but that's all I've got. It's not and that I don't crumpled. even know what's coming. Let's just wait and see where this goes. I mean, I, to some extent, Libby, I think Canada probably has this right in which, yes, we're going to do this for, for big international travel, including the United States. And, and I guess when I say this, and we're really going to try very hard not to do this within our own country for pubs and sports events and everything else. And I think that's pretty well the best we can do. U of T bioethicist Dr. Carrie Bowman, travel insurance expert Martin Firestone, and David Scholes of Leger. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. Coming up after the break, examining a political first for Ontario. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As the province starts to reopen, election spending is not top of mind for most, but the next election appears to be on Doug Ford's radar because his government aims to override the Constitution to get its way, recalling the legislature to do it. The Tories expanded limits on election spending by third parties like unions, limits that were originally imposed by the previous win liberal government. The Conservatives wanted those limits to apply a year before an election rather than six months. But the court struck it down. Rather than appealing, they plan to invoke the notwithstanding clause to make this law stand. Libby spoke with Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, former Provincial Attorney General Michael Bryant, now Executive Director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and Conservative strategist David Tarrant, formerly Head of Strategic Communications in Doug Ford's office and co-author of the 2018 Ontario PC election platform. 
what you see is what you get in terms of what's happening in Ontario across Canada, or even if you look at south of the border in the United States. Uh, there's a real issue with what they call soft money, which is uh, extremely wealthy interests, uh, millions of dollars of soft money that go outside the party system. They go to shadowy kind of third-party groups who basically then uh, swamp swamp the uh, the electoral system uh, with whether, we, whether it's negative ads, whether, whether it's a tax, uh, at, to a level that's far beyond what the party spend. And it's a real threat to our democracy. And so the fundamental issue here is uh, the Ford government's trying to keep all the soft, dirty money from allowing people to try to buy elections. And uh, that's something that, quite frankly, all parties have agreed on in the past. Okay, let's bring in the Ontario Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca. Assuming you were listening to David Tarrant, uh, what, what's your view of all this? Uh, look, I'll give him top marks for repeating ad nauseum the political spin coming from Doug Ford's campaign team. Uh, but virtually none of what he said makes any sense in this scenario. And the flippant way that they are choosing to talk about their groundbreaking in a negative way decision to invoke the notwithstanding clause is really, really despicable. The notwithstanding clause has existed in the Constitution for four decades. It's never been used in the province of Ontario, not by a former conservative premier, not by an NDP premier, and not by a liberal premier. And in three years, Doug Ford has threatened once to use it prior to today and has now chosen to use it. He has no respect for the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. He has no respect for democracy. And that's because he's interested in one thing and one thing only, his re-election chances come next year. And again, it's despicable. I want to bring in Michael Bryant. He's the Executive Director and General Counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and he is also a former Liberal Attorney General. What bothers you more, this business about invoking the notwithstanding clause or uh, what you're calling an infringement of free speech? I think what's... uh particularly um, interesting legally and constitutionally from a rights perspective is, you know, when you think of the big examples that it's been used by Quebec, it's with respect to language rights uh, or uh, with respect to, you know, laicite, the the restrictions they put on religious symbols. And in both cases, Quebec says, look, this is what the people want. We got elected with a mandate to do this, so we're going to infringe on language rights. We're going to infringe on freedom of religion. Why? Well, because we were elected to do this. And I know courts, you say otherwise, but this is what we're going to do. In this case, what's different about it is that it is about the election. This is about who can spend what uh, during the election. So my concern is that this is, you know, just cravenly self-interested. If you add up all the third party spending and you get rid of all that, then it means that the only people who are allowed to advertise during the election are the parties. Mm-hmm. And right now, the, obviously, the Conservatives have a big advantage over the others because they're in, the incumbents. And so you can expect that they will outspend their opponents. And what it means is that the Conservative message gets out. And, you know, if they can raise more money than the other parties, well, then that's part of democracy. If they do, if they pass this, is that it? No recourse? Uh, there's a, a couple of possibilities. Uh, one of them is to challenge the notwithstanding clause bill that's before the House right now uh, on the basis that, in effect, it is trying to overturn Section 3 rights under the Constitution, which are democratic rights. Uh, and the second thing is that we could we could go back and challenge the uh, the 12-month law under Section 3, and they couldn't use the notwithstanding clause on that. Both of them would presume that 
we could all get to court quick enough to do this in time for it to have an impact before the next election. And I don't know if that's possible with our current court system. Former Provincial Attorney General Michael Bryant, now Executive Director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Liberal Leader Stephen Del Duca, and Conservative Strategist David Tarrant, formerly Head of Strategic Communications in Doug Ford's office and co-author of the Tories' 2018 election platform. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. In the wake of the discovery of the mass burial of more than 200 Indigenous child victims at a former residential school out in B.C. and the toppling of the statue of Egerton Ryerson, one Toronto neighbourhood is calling for the removal of another statue. It depicts Alexander Wood, a Scottish merchant and magistrate in Upper Canada who apparently was at the centre of a sex scandal in 1810. The twist here that the statue is not a holdover from colonial times. It was erected at the request of the community back in 2005 when Wood was hailed an early gay pioneer. The Church Wellesley Business Improvement Area now wants the statue removed after discovering his past links to an organization called the Society for Converting and Civilizing the Indians and Propagating the Gospel Among Destitute Settlers in Upper Canada. Libby talked with Christopher Hudspeth, chair of the Church Wellesley Village BIA, who feels it should not be the only ones on the hook for paying for the statue's removal. Well, we realize that we have been the guardians of this statue uh, for some time. Uh, you know, it has been our responsibility to make sure that it stays in good repair. But, you know, that being said, uh, the BIA shared the cost of this with the City of Toronto, uh, 50% cost share. The City of Toronto paid for the installation of the statue. It sits on city property. And we feel that we have a joint responsibility here to deal with this. The response of the city has been that it's our responsibility to remove it. But seeing as, you know, we... Uh, have had this joint responsibility in putting it there, we feel that it would have been a better decision for the city to have come back and said, we will work together to try to come up with a solution rather than just throwing it back at us. What do you say to people who say, hey, the city was being nice in helping the community fund a project that it wanted, that it originated, you know, a, a taxpayer, totally unrelated taxpayer saying, hey, some of my money went to that. Uh, now you want to take it down. You know, why should why should a taxpayer be on the hook for that? Well, I mean, I think it, it was all tax money originally. BIAs uh, receive a levy from their uh, members, which is also tax money. So, you know, um, I mean, there's, there is that. But you know, it's also a social responsibility and governments like the city have the abilities and uh, the, you know, funds in order to assist in, in dealing with problems like this. Uh, most certainly, you know, they were involved in the erecting of it. It's their archives that we found this information in as well. So, I mean, I think there's also a responsibility there. Now, as I mentioned, uh your counselor, Kristen Wong Tam, uh, was involved in advocating to get this statue built mm-hmm. or cast. Uh, and she acknowledged that in a statement, but uh, she isn't showing her face to talk about it. What do you think of that? 
Well, I mean, I, I think that's unfortunate. Uh, you know, the response uh, from the counselor, which is the only response we've received, I have not had an official response from the mayor and even reaching out to his office this morning, still don't uh, have any communication directly with his office. Um, you know, she you know, squarely wants to throw it back into our laps as our problem. And uh, so I guess that's maybe the reason. I don't know. So are, are you going to remove the statue if you've got to pay for the whole shot? Well, I mean, we would like the statue to be able to be kept as a teachable moment somewhere uh, where I think someday a whole lot of statues could exist. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we most certainly have called for other areas, other cities, towns, BIAs to look at what's in their own backyards and, uh, reflect on why they're there. But, uh, you know, we will, we'll take a look at alternatives. I mean, again, it's early days, but we, uh, we most certainly don't want to erase the history. Uh, we think it's important to know where we have been and where we're going, but not, uh, we don't need the symbolism sitting in the middle of our village. Christopher Hutspeth, chair of the Church Wellesley Village Business Improvement Area. I'm Bob Comsick, and you're listening to The Best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Giovanni from Brampton had this to say about the deadly vehicular attack in London. Let's not start to condemn anybody. I just would like to know what 20-year-old man that driving a truck ate another car for hate crime. This is something that it could never happen here. But we have to all know that we have to get to the fact first. And when the fact comes along... Then we will decide, the judge decide, if the man is killed or not guilty. Now that Manitoba's become the first province to implement a vaccine passport, Lee in Toronto talked about getting something similar. I got a piece of paper that came out of a machine that you would put your visa or card in, and it spit this little thing out, two inches by four inches, and the Ministry of Health, my name, my health card, my date of birth, the day that I got the, um, and the agent, the type of COVID it was, the product name, as well as the dosage, and that I received two valid doses, and where I got them, and who gave it to me. The doctor said to me, you can put this into your passport if you're going on a trip. Of course, I'm a senior. I don't know if I will be. And uh, you could use this if they don't give you a regular passport or a or something that goes into your passport. Okay, well, uh, you put it in your passport and see if it works. <laughs> Let us know. Thank you. Pat in Toronto, frustrated by Doug Ford's planning agenda. The man is just bulldozing anything he wants in the planning area. 
we've now got these MZO ability, ministerial zoning orders, where basically Doug Ford and his uh, underlings can basically do anything for anybody in the province with regard to planning. Bill in Toronto weighed in on the province's desire to invoke the notwithstanding clause in order to restore parts of a law on third-party election advertising deemed unconstitutional by a judge. I'm a member of one of the biggest unions in Canada. They support, uh, obviously, left-wing uh, politicians. And I've complained numerous times about my union dues being used to fund fund them. And also, internally, they launch a campaign against any right-wing, any conservatives that are running. And I told them, I said, I don't want my money. You, you have no right to take my money and use it for, for politics that I don't support. I wanted the money to go to charity. That can't happen. They basically said, too bad. So I support for it. Get the unions. Unions and government have been in bed for 100 years. Time to, time to split them out. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There are a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jason in Etobicoke on the Notwithstanding Clause. I believe that this is entirely unconstitutional. The government, the laws have said that. It's an abuse of power, clearly trying to gerrymander things towards the Conservatives. Go figure that they passed this law the same day that it shows in a recent poll that the NDP is at neck and neck with the Conservatives. Now they're passing this law because they uh, and uh, because it's clearly they've clearly spent four years attacking workers, and now they don't want workers to have a voice. What they do want is their rich donors to be able to funnel money through Matney Matamy Homes into uh, Ontario Proud. Doug Ford didn't have a problem with that. This is a matter about who gets the talk. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays, or if you have a comment, email us at fightbackatzoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.